Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Nakisha Elise Williams. Nakisha Williams is a two-time Emmy award-winning producer, an award-winning author and producer and host of the Black and Published podcast. Her latest book is Mardi Gras Indians. I wanted to talk to Nakisha about her book on the Mardi Gras Indians first because, well, we're celebrating Mardi Gras on the day this podcast episode is released. So happy Mardi Gras, everyone. Much of Mardi Gras has taken on, as you all know, a commercial, hyper-indulgent, over-the-top veneer. But when you start to peel the layers back, this is a tradition that encompasses the mixing of so many cultures. You've got Catholics, French, the Creole, Africans, African-Americans, and Native Americans. And one of those traditions is the Mardi Gras Indians. Have you ever heard of them? They date way back to the 1800s when Native Americans provided a safe refuge for enslaved persons who had escaped bondage. This friendship between the formerly enslaved Africans and various Native American tribes in the South helped birth one of the most colorful and unique cultural expressions of Mardi Gras, and that is the Black Masked Indians. I wanted to talk to Nikisha for Mardi Gras because, well, I mean, this is not an aspect of Mardi Gras culture that's really well known or has gotten a lot of attention, but it's an important story. It's an important story of creativity, resistance, and rebellion. And I know when you hear this conversation between me and Nikisha, you're going to learn a lot. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And you know what? That is okay. That's that's actually healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by clicking the follow button on your favorite podcast listening app and by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Nakisha Elise Williams is up next. Nakisha Williams, welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast. Thank you for having me. Nakisha, I read that you describe yourself as a New Orleans once removed. (laughs) (laughs) How does that work? So both of my parents are from New Orleans. My mother was raised in the Ninth Ward. My dad was raised uptown. And so they met later after they had both gone through college in the military in Chicago. And they were both from New Orleans. They knew each other. They married. Me and my brother were born in Chicago. 
But every year, several times a year, we were driving, loading up my dad's gray Astro van, driving 18 hours south to New Orleans. And we would spend a week with one grandmother. We spend a week with another grandmother. We were there for Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and summer break and spring break. So all the time, basically, right? That it was a second home to me. It wasn't like a vacation. It was like, okay, we're just going to see relatives, but it's like home. Like I had a bike, I had toys, I had birthday parties there. So that's how that worked. Got it. I see. So how did you first become interested in Mardi Gras? I became interested because sometimes my parents would go to Mardi Gras, but they wouldn't take my brother and I, and partially because we were still in school. So like in New Orleans, Mardi Gras, you don't go to school that day. You have that day off. But anywhere else in the country, it's a Tuesday. You're going to school. So, like, they come back with, like, the Zulu coconuts and the trinkets, and they'd gone to the balls and were all in the quarter partying and all in the streets in the parade. And we're just like, mm, we had math class today, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what are the origins of Mardi Gras, as you understand it from the research you did for your book? It's French, Really, it's French, it's Parisian carnival, but it was tied closely to the Catholic Church because if you look at the Mardi Gras calendar and even specifically some of the days that the Mardi Gras Indians observe, they're matched up with the liturgical calendar. And so the carnival season itself starts the Feast of the Epiphany, like January 5th. I grew up Catholic, so I'm trying to remember. Starts with the Feast of the Epiphany, January 5th, and then it runs through. Fat Tuesday, which is the day before Ash Wednesday. And so Mardi Gras Fat Tuesday is supposed to be like the last day of indulgence and decadence and debauchery sometimes before you go and you get your ashes and you're fasting and you're praying and you're giving up something during the Lenten season as Christ gave up his life for mankind, right? So that's where that comes from. And so those are the origins of Mardi Gras. But as the Catholic Church changed and evolved and moved away from some of those liturgical celebrations and processions because there was a procession culture associated with the Catholic Church. And the way that procession culture functioned was to convert indigenous tribes and African people into Catholicism. And so you see the exchange of cultures in how Catholicism has influenced Black people, not only in Africa, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And so that syncretism looks like Vodun in Haiti. That syncretism looks like Santeria or Lukumi or Ifa in some ways, the way that African people and African traditional religions celebrate and give worship. A lot of those saints and orishas have been combined and syncretized with Catholic saints and orishas, right? So as a Catholic church grew and began to move away from the procession culture that so many indigenous people in Africa, South America, the West Indies, the United States began to know and love, it became commercialized. So yeah, Mardi Gras, right? Means mm-hmm. what? Fat Tuesday. And some people do consider it a Catholic carnival since it happens the day before Ash Wednesday and the start of the Lenten season. And we know there's plenty of licentious <laughs> behavior and indulgences, actually, that the church may not wholeheartedly <laughs> condone. So that's interesting that you mentioned that. And you mentioned the indigenous cultures of the people in Africa playing a role in these processions and also the people adopted it themselves. Mm-hmm. Very much so. It just goes to show the power of... Not so much the power, but the power and endurance of cultural customs Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of times the narrative is that, you know, 
Europeans went to Africa and converted all these many people to this way of believing and this way of life. And it's not to say that that didn't happen, but it's to acknowledge that maybe they embraced it, but they embraced it in a way that made sense to them and the spiritual traditions they already had. So that's controversial to a lot of Christians who say there's only one God and one name and one way and one Bible. However, you have to realize that as people were trying to win souls to Christ by spreading the mission and the gospel of Jesus through Catholicism in these places that maybe hadn't heard, they had to do it in the way that was going to be acceptable to the people they were giving the gospel to. We call that enculturation. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Right? So you call it enculturation. And so this isn't unusual when you are evangelizing, you speak what is true to the culture and familiar to the people and sharing the message of the gospel. And I think some people probably aren't familiar with that and also don't recognize that with the church being global, you have traditions and practices in terms of liturgical worship that are specific to certain areas like there's in some places there's liturgical dance Mm -hmm. as a part of the culture like in the Zaire and rite and also you see in in some Roman rite celebrations the same cultural practices of liturgical dance or drums or things that are local to the people Mm -hmm. and so we shouldn't be surprised that that also (laughs) would show up here with Mardi Gras. So let me just ask can you explain (laughs) obviously you can can you explain to my audience what are Mardi Gras Indians? So the Mardi Gras Indians or the Black Masking Indians, I use the terms interchangeably in the book, and a lot of people use them interchangeably as well. They are a group of men, women, children, families, neighbors who at carnival time in New Orleans mask Indian or mask as the Plains Indians, Native American indigenous people. And what they are doing in their masking is paying homage to those tribes of the lower Mississippi River Valley who provided refuge and safety for escaped Africans during the time of slavery, while also paying tribute to the warrior culture of African tribes that were enslaved on the continent and brought over to the new world, but in a way that would not be suspicious during the time of colonization and antebellum slavery in New Orleans, especially once New Orleans, Louisiana specifically became a part of the United States and the racism and white supremacy that is embedded in American history would rear its ugly head at an enslaved person parading around as a warrior. That just wouldn't go over well. So it's a mask of a mask and it's done at carnival time. So again, it's another way to fly under the radar while still paying tribute to your culture. That was a very long answer. (laughs) No, no, it's a great answer. But, you know, one of the things you mentioned is you mentioned white supremacy and a negative response to Black people in display as warriors. I think we have to maybe talk a little bit about that because I've been seeing people not understand what white supremacy means. And I think it's helpful for people to understand that white supremacy is a conditioning of the mind to see whiteness and white activity as supreme over others, overall. And you don't necessarily have to think a person is inferior. You do, however, have to believe that you have the prerogative and only you have the prerogative to certain types of activities, beliefs, actions. In other words, white people, white men are warriors, not Black men. But maybe you would describe that a little differently because some people are like, well, 
you know, there's no white supremacy. What do you mean there's white supremacy in the United States or, you know, built in the soil here? People don't understand that because they are thinking that you also have to have an active animus. And since they don't think that there's that same kind of active animus, that therefore there is no more white supremacy. I mean, at its basis level, white supremacy is the belief in the superiority of white people, right? Mm -hmm. So then do you have to actively think that someone is inferior? No, but it's predispositioned on the fact that you, even if you don't supposedly think yourself better, the institutions that have been formed have been formed with you at the center. And so it automatically privileges your point of view, your perspective over and above someone else's. But if you're talking about in context of the Mardi Gras Indians and how they formed, and especially what I talk about in the very first chapter of my book, African people who were later enslaved were considered to be subhuman as not equivalent or not actually human like another white man, but just below them. So they were considered to be less than human, more like animals or savages, right? So when you think about it in that way, then white supremacy is the superiority of white people over Black people. It's interesting to me that you call them Black masking Indians. You described what that is. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So it's not so much that they're hiding that they're Black or that they're hiding that they're African. It's that they're hiding the culture that they have taken pride in as Black people, as African people, which is one of pride, one of a warrior culture, one steeped in the continent of Africa and those rituals and those celebrations and ceremonies. You can think of it as, you know, how Black folk will have botillions and cotillions and call them rite of passage ceremonies, right? Yeah. And so like, we're all familiar with them and the big balls and the dresses and the, the formalities of it. So if you take it back to 15th century Kingdom of the Congo, it's a similar type of thing where you're having these ceremonies, these rites of passage, and they're called sangimentos and they're war dances, and they're done for many different reasons, but it's still along those same lines. Well, once you're enslaved and considered to be subjugated, white people aren't going to feel comfortable with you walking around with hatchets and machetes saying you're paying homage and doing rites of passage ceremonies. Like, that's just not going to go over very well, right? right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if Haiti has taught us anything, is that that doesn't go over very well. Well, I mean, the Stoner River Rebellion, where those Congolese Catholics rebelled and, and marched. and They rebelled and won. Yeah. But that doesn't go over very well. But in a way to preserve that culture, as well as to spend an afternoon because a lot of the traditions of the Mardi Gras Indians rose out of the market functions of Congo Square in New Orleans, which on Saturday and Sunday enslaved people were hired out and were forced to feed and clothe and look after themselves. So they would gather on Congo Square and then they would keep their traditions and they would drum and dance and perform these ceremonies and these rituals and these war dances. And then when the time came for carnival, you know, everybody's getting dressed up and parading around. So it's like, well, why don't we parade around too? But we can't parade around as we normally do. So we're going to dress up as Plains Indians, which had come back into favor after the Indian Removal Act under President Andrew Jackson and had come back into favor through popular culture with the Buffalo Bill Wild West shows. Well, that is not the origin of the Mardi Gras Indians by any means. It is a notable date of when 
modern Mardi Gras Indian culture, we can say that that kind of began, is that 1886 date. But the Black people have been masking Indian in New Orleans well before that date. Well, can you tell me about the significance of Congo Square? Yes. So as I was saying, when Louisiana was formed as a colony of the French, they had a very difficult time farming the land, making it inhabitable, so much so that they would starve. And so in an effort to not starve, the white people and their slaves would go and live with the indigenous tribes so that they could survive. And then they try again until like they finally got the hang of it. So because it was so difficult to establish the colony and the agrarian society there, what those first French colonists did was allow their enslaved Africans, enslaved Black people to have days off from Friday evening until like Monday morning. And on those days when the enslaved people were no longer working for their owners, they were able to work for themselves, which means they had to grow food to sell or hire themselves out as brick masons or something of the such like that to have a trade. And so, or they were going to go fish and all of those things. So with that decision, they then began to have to sell their wares. And the place where they sold their wares was in and around Congo Square. So that's what I mean by the market function of Congo Square. But in addition to the market function, like Black people today, if we're gathering with food, we're gathering with music, right? So there was drumming, there was dancing, and there were leaps and shouts and calls and the remembrances of the old indigenous ways from the African continent, no matter if you had just been brought over or if you had been born in America. But then too, you also have to realize that the tribes of the lower Mississippi River Valley were also still living in and around New Orleans. So they would participate in the market functions and the singing and the dancing and all of that. And New Orleans had one of the largest populations of free Black people. And so they too would also participate in the market square functions of Congo Square and the singing and the dancing. So then you had all of this coming together, enslaved Africans, Black Americans, free people of color, and indigenous tribes singing, dancing, selling their wares, and really intermixing and intermingling. That is how Congo Square became what we know it as today. And so out of Congo Square came, yes, the Mardi Gras Indians, but it also came jazz music, also came the foodways that we associate specifically with New Orleans and Creole cuisine and Atchafalaya River-based foods. All of that came out of Congo Square and those market functions. We'll be back in a minute. So one of the things that I was thinking about, as you mentioned, and we're talking about this history of the Mardi Gras Indians, Black masking Indians, I think it's helpful for people to understand how Black people were prevented from celebrating Mardi Gras. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So after the Louisiana Purchase and Americans began to flood what was once a French colony, Americans as Americans are wont to do, we are all guilty, took over right? And they didn't understand these French customs and these French ways. Most of them weren't Catholic because American was started as mostly a Protestant nation. And so when they realized that they could not eliminate all of these customs that were beloved in the city, such as Mardi Gras, the Americans took it over. And so that's when you had the founding 
of the crews that are still parading today, the Mystic Crew of Comus, Rex, and all of these things. And a lot of those crews were secret societies that were formed by racist white men, and they would have their carnival and their parade and their costumes and their floats, and they would parade down Canal Street or Bourbon Street in the French Quarter, and Black people weren't allowed to go. And the only way they were allowed to participate were if they were carrying the lanterns at the front of the float. Even to this day, many Black people don't go to the carnival parades where you think that they would. They don't go to those big name parades down in the French Quarter or really downtown. They stay in the community, in the neighborhood where they can see not only the Mardi Gras Indians, but they can see the baby dolls and they can see the Skull and Bones gangs. And if any of the social aid and pleasure clubs do something for Mardi Gras, that's all in the community. And it's called, you know, like in the back of town. And then, you know, they may go out to see the Zulu parade, but even the Zulu parade doesn't take place in the same area that some of those other old school Confederate racist crews parades take place. And so there are really two Mardi Gras where Black people party and have Mardi Gras is not always the same as where white people party and have Mardi Gras. I think there's been more integration because a lot of people may be curious about, well, what's happening back there, where the Indians, this, that, and the third, but it still very much is separated. Now, one of the things people may notice who are familiar with the Mardi Gras Indians is the elaborate, ornate costumes. Could you talk a little bit about that? So every year they make a new suit. Man, woman, child, every year they make a new suit. And the suits are made by hand. They are hand-sewn. Some sew on cardboard and make like 3D creations. Some sew on canvas flat patches and make their suits that way. There's lots of beading, lots of plumes, lots of feather, lots of velvet. And they are expensive. Okay. <laughs> like five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 for one suit that you're going to wear maybe five times. That's being a little generous, maybe five times. So this is artistry and they do it for the love. There's no money. I mean, yes, some do sell their suits to museums. There are installations all over the world. There was one recently in Paris. There are museums in New Orleans. Some may sell them to pawn shops. Some may sell them back to the people where they bought the materials from to break it down because they need the money. But Mm. no matter what happens in the aftermath, they are spending this money. These men, these women, these families are spending this money to make these creations that are absolutely beautiful and should defy physics. Like they're wearing <laughs> these 100 pound suits and parading through the streets of New Orleans. And you know it's hot. Yes. You know it's hot. You know it's humid. And they're out there all day because they love it because they're paying homage to a culture that began before them and is bigger than them because they're paying homage to ancestors because that's what this is. It's about ancestry. It's not just a parade. It's not just carnival or a bacchanal to go out, get drunk, have fun, and like say, hey, mister, throw me some bees. That's not what this is that's happening. For some of them, it really is a spiritual and religious experience. And that goes down to the songs that they sing, the hand signals that they throw, the dances that they do, and how they operate within their communities as well. When you said the hand signals, I immediately thought of the spy boy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So each tribe, and it can vary in the number of members, but there are specific positions. There's the big chief, there may be a big queen, 
There's a spy boy, a flag boy, maybe a gang flag. There's a wild man. And those are pretty much the roles in the tribe. And then, you know, children may run around and be little chiefs, little queens, princes, princesses, things like that. But at the end of the day, yes, they make a new suit every year. But before they get ready to go out on Mardi Gras Day, they have Indian practice. Usually it's held Sunday afternoon at a bar somewhere. That's just tradition. Don't trip. (laughs) And so, but during these practices, you know, they sing, they dance, and then, you know, they practice the hand signals that they're going to use so that when they're out on Mardi Gras Day and they're they're parading through the streets, and if they come up on another tribe, they're not surprised when they see them. The spy boy who's all the way might be two, three, four, five blocks ahead has sent that message back through the tribe, through the other members, through certain signals. So that's one way to communicate. And it's a way to communicate without speaking. Because again, this is a warrior culture. So if you see the Creole Wild West and the Yellow Pocahontas, and they're meeting in the middle of the street somewhere in New Orleans, those are two old school rivalry tribes. So they're going to meet each other. They're going to battle it out. And by battling, I mean, they're going to sing, they're going to dance, and they're going to try to see who looks the best. It's really about who is dressed the prettiest. But, you know, there might be a little pushing and shoving, might be a little tussling sometimes. It's (laughs) all in good fun, but it's still warrior culture. It's still paying homage to that ancestry. And now, but the the emphasis now really is on the beauty of how they've created themselves to be. So, you know, it's interesting. You very much mentioned the battling it out and things like that, but it's not as if it's like a serious gang rivalry. Sounds like you're saying it's about, you know, just sort of the who has bragging rights, I guess, on the best outfits and whatnot. Or am I misunderstanding that? It's a little bit of both. The second chapter of the book, Mardi Gras Indians, where I talk about how there was really violence in the past and the history as the Mardi Gras Indians have evolved, where they would have real weapons, they would have real hatches, they would have real spears. And, you know, if there was somebody who masked Indian that they didn't like, they was going to settle the score on Mardi Gras Day. (laughs) (laughs) And there are people on record who quote, you know, I think it's Big Chief Robbie Lee who said, you know, you didn't mask if you weren't rough. But by no means is it all violence and bloodshed either. There was a point in time where there was real fear and there was real violence and there was real bloodshed. But today, 2023, that's not something that you're really going to see on the streets, although that is in the history. One of the things I am curious about is in your study of Black masking Indians or Mardi Gras Indians, as some people call it, what inspirations have you taken from these people and their remarkable expressions of creativity, resistance, and resilience? I think it's really just inspiring. Again, I go back to the money piece of it. Like it really is a financial investment and they do it because they love it. So that says something to me as an artist that, you know, you have to be willing to invest in your craft and get better. Hmm. I think what it says about the resistance and resilience of them is that New Orleans has faced a lot of change, especially since Hurricane Katrina and now even post-COVID. And the fact that these families, these men, women, and children continue to participate in the culture, evolve the culture, and pretty much refuse to like bow down to the whims of some in the city who would like nothing more than to, as I quoted in the book, 
create a smaller, taller, whiter New Orleans. They're just not having it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, this was our city. It's always been our city. It's always been a Black city. And this is what we're about. And this is why, real talk, why everybody wants to come here and party with us is because of our culture. So you can't have the city of New Orleans without the people who make it. And I think standing 10 toes down on that, I really admire. And again, it's inspiring. Nakisha Williams, thank you so much for all the work you've done on your book with Black Mardi Gras Indians and for joining me on the Gloria Purvis podcast. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member. And be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Can you do me a favor and leave us a review? I mean, if you can, I would really love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.